Open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 14. I'm going to pray for us and we look at the Word of God together. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. We thank you that you're a God who calls us. We thank you for the gospel that reshapes our identity. It gives us a new purpose and a new vision. I pray this morning as we think about the year ahead and what you have called us to as a church that you would help us to remember our gospel identity and that every effort and activity that flows out from this year would be grounded in the truth that Jesus has made us your people. Father, we long to see this city radically transformed by the gospel. We know that you have called us to that, and so we pray this year would be the year where we see you do things in this city that are for your glory and your worth and your majesty, that your name would be praised and honored. And we ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Have a guess which community group is the group that uh, contributes most to civil good in our society? It's the church. It's the religious organizations of our world. Some recent research that was done both in Australia and the UK and America have all brought the same results, the same conclusion, that people who live in faith-based communities are disproportionately volunteering across our cities and our towns and countries. That um, people of faith tended to concentrate in specific jobs, that they called the caring professions, jobs like healthcare, medicine, education, welfare, social services. They, in fact, also found an Australian National University study found that people who belonged to faith-based organisations were more likely to give to charity, including secular charities, and more likely to donate blood. Interesting article that came out quoting all these stats in the Sydney Morning Herald nearly bowled me over. I was like, it's nice to get some good press once in a while for the church. Now, I don't quote those facts to you to boast about the church, but to rejoice in the fact that even our newspapers can recognize that the church is a source of good and blessing in our society. And that's the way it should be. Although sometimes, to be fair, the church does deserve the negative press that it gets because its behavior and its beliefs don't always match up. But when the church functions as it ought, as it has over centuries and centuries and centuries, as it lives out like salt and light in the culture around it, the culture should notice. In fact, sometimes people talk about being a church in a certain part of a city or a town, that if the church was to disappear, the culture would grieve that church moving on and leaving. And so this morning we look at Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus' call on the church, not just individuals, but the church to be light, to be salt. You know, one of the reasons that we planted Anchor was a deep desire to see a church where evangelism and mission wasn't just an event that you put on and that you ran, but an everyday lifestyle. A church where, where people viewed themselves as missionaries in their everyday context taking the good news of Jesus to their workplaces and cities and homes and sporting teams. 
And as we read the scriptures, we became convinced that evangelism wasn't just for a select, gifted, elect few, but for every single person who called Jesus Lord. If we have any hope of reaching our city of around 4.9 million people, with at best 2 to 4% who would love Jesus, if we have any hope of reaching millions and millions of people, it cannot just be the pastors of the churches. We need every single person who loves Jesus to be on mission. Every single one of us. Our vision at Anchor is to be a church that transforms our city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. That's the church that we want to see. What does it look like to be a church that makes disciples and glorifies God according to Matthew chapter 5? That's the question I want to ask this morning. And we get part of the answer, not all of it, but part of the answer in those verses. So Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, this is what it says. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If our purpose as a church is that God would be glorified, how does it happen according to this verse? It happens as God's people live extraordinary lives, shine their light in the culture around them that makes God look worthy of worship. In fact, we could tweak our vision statement to say we see a church that transforms a city by living like lights to the glory of God. That, that's what it means to be a disciple according to this verse. You are light. Jesus here is talking to his disciples and he he tells them a couple of things, and I want to walk through them. Firstly, he tells them what their identity is. Then he gives them two pictures of what that identity is, and then he tells them how to live that out in their everyday lives. So firstly, let's look at their identity. Verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. This is a profound statement of identity, and it has rich a fulfillment of promise and prophecy of God. If you go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 60, God promises this about his people Israel. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. God's purpose has always been that his people would have this attractive pull to them. That the nations would see their light and come, their character, their worship, their God. And so it's sad really to see as you turn the pages of the Old Testament how Israel just failed to do that time and time again. A nation that was not even close to being light. Instead, they were faithless and idolatrous. And the name of the Lord was scorned among the nations because of how they lived. How sad it is then to see the modern day church sometimes doing the exact same thing. That we're sometimes known more for what we stand against than what we stand for. Now to be true... 
We do need to stand against certain things in our culture that God would call us to. But I feel like sometimes there's just this disproportionate focus on what we're against than what we're for. These scriptures tell us to be salt and light, preserving and preserving the decay and rottenness as well as bearing truth and bringing revelation. And so it's almost humorous that Jesus would say of the disciples, 12 scruffy, uneducated, unemployed disciples, you are the light of the world. I mean, for people who knew their Old Testament, for people who knew the promises of God and Isaiah, that would be laughable, that 12 scruffy fishermen would be called the light of the world. I mean, you would think that Jesus is almost overstating his case until you begin to read the rest of the New Testament and you see the early church and the life of the disciples and you realize he was right. The church is the light of the world. But what does that mean? You are the light of the world. It's a, it's a metaphor. Light often in the scriptures is a metaphor for truth. Darkness is often a metaphor for, um, uh, for lies and falsehood. And so when Jesus says to the church, you are the light of the world, he's saying, you are truth. You bring life. You reveal. This metaphor of the Christian life means that for a disciple of Jesus, your life ought to be distinctly different from those around you. Light creates contrast, radically reshaped by the gospel. It means that our lives are noticeable. Being light means, in the end, being a missionary, a representative of Jesus in the everyday. Now, you know what makes this statement even more profound? Is not so much that he's told the church or these, these little disciples that they are the light of the world, but in fact, this is the title that Jesus gives himself. You look at John chapter 1, where the, the writer of John begins to unpack who Jesus is, and he says, True light has come and brought light to all men. Or you go to John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world of the brightest kind. And so when he says to the church, to the disciples, you are the light of the world, he is giving them his own identity, that we would be his advocates and representatives here on earth. You know, just as a bit of a side point there, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what he means there is that he has come to break into the darkness and the brokenness and the sin and the lies and the deception of this world to bring light, to bring truth, to bring freedom, to bring healing, to bring restoration. The scriptures talk about two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And Jesus says, for those who follow me will not walk in the kingdom of darkness anymore where there is no hope and without God. You now walk in the kingdom of light with freedom and truth. There's no sitting on the fence with Jesus. You're either all in or you're not. Jesus says, whoever follows me, whoever has faith in me, whoever trusts me, kingdom of light. Jesus comes and he deals with our brokenness and our sin by dying on the cross for it to wash it clean. He shines light on the darkness in our lives and the, light, and the darkness disappears. 
That's the message of the gospel. And friends, if you don't know that this morning, we plead with you to come and ask questions about that. To ask what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. What does that mean for you personally? What it means for the church is that we bear his identity. And that is a crazy thing, that Jesus would call us the light of the world. The church would never be so audacious to take that title for themselves had Jesus not given it to us. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Live as children of light. Or in Philippians 2.15, he says, In the darkness of this world, shine like stars in the universe. That is who we are. This is a statement of identity. And it's important to realize that our identity always precedes our activity. Gospel identity always precedes gospel activity. We ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the light of the world. What has Jesus done? He's broken into the darkness of the world to shine his light. Who are we? We are the light of the world because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done. What do we do? We shine light. Gospel identity, who we are in Christ, precedes our activity. Because without it, we have no light. Without it, it's us, our right self-righteousness, our good works. I wonder if you consider yourself that. When you think about who you are, do you think, I am the light of the world? When you think of the church, do you think that is what we are? We are the light of the city of Sydney. Yes, so often I think we have swallowed the lie of the culture that says church is irrelevant. McCrindle Research did some um, questioning of people about two years ago, and they said that the number one reason why people didn't come to church was that it was irrelevant for them. 46% of Australians said church was irrelevant. That's why they didn't go. The culture might try and put us in the corner and ignore us. But you know what? Sometimes that's where we shine brightest. We need not believe the lie that the church is irrelevant. We are exceedingly relevant because we are the light of the world. And my hope is that we would be a church that the culture cannot ignore as irrelevant because of our lives, because our lives demonstrate that our faith is real and relevant and radically transforming not only us, but our city as well. That is our identity. You are the light of the world. Every single one of you who loves and serves Jesus, you are light to this city. Well, secondly, Jesus gives them two images, two pictures to describe this metaphor of light. The first is in verse 14. He says, A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. A city on a hill is noticeable. It's unmistakably noticeable. Before we moved to Erskineville, just uh, nearly a year and a half ago, we were living in Mount Druitt, of all places. I was working for a church out in the west doing youth ministry with high school students. And we were living out the back of Mount Druitt, and we lived on the top story of this apartment complex. And it had a 250-square-meter balcony with 270-degree views of our surrounding suburbs. Mount Druitt, Westfield to the right, the train station, Bunnings, Minchinbury to the left, but... West was a glorious view of the Blue Mountains. And I'd often go out on the balcony at night and reflect and pray and 
ask that God would work in our suburb in the west of Sydney. And as I looked west, you could just see the, the blackness of the Blue Mountains. But snaking its way up the Great Western Highway were lights. It was, I mean, the Blue Mountains isn't really even a city. It's just a cluster of suburbs, and it's noticeable. A city on a hill is undeniably evident because of the light that it exudes. The second image there is one of a lamp placed in a room to give light to the people of the house. In a culture where there was no electricity, lighting a candle or a lamp wasn't novel, it wasn't romantic, it wasn't because there was a blackout, it was there every day. Every single day as the sun set, you would, you would charge the oil and, and light the lamps so that it would provide light to the house. And Jesus is saying, you don't light your lamp and then smother it, put it under a bowl, because that defeats the purpose of lighting the lamp in the first place. You need to light the lamp to give light to the house. You know what these metaphors mean? It means that you cannot be an invisible Christian. It means you cannot worship Jesus and hide, and hide your faith. Because in the end, hiding is denying your identity because that is who you are. You are the light of the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor, could have compromised like many other pastors in his nation during the Nazi regime. Could have compromised, could have sold out, but he didn't. He stood for what he believed in, and in fact, it ended up costing me his life. But in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes this. He says, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of faith that seeks to hide itself ceases to follow him. I wonder how we do that with our lives. We take the bowl and we smother the light. We can do that in a number of ways. We can do that in compromise. We can do that in laziness. We can do that in fear. We do that when we compromise, when our belief and our behavior just don't match up, when we look no different to the people around us who don't love Jesus and they see no radical difference that the gospel makes in our life. We do that when we are lazy about sharing the amazingly good news of Jesus, when we don't feel the sense of urgency and desperation of our city that needs the hope of Christ. We do that when we fear, when we fear what people think, when we fear that we don't know all the answers, when we fear that we're going to get the propositions wrong. We put a bowl on the light. But thankfully, Friends, the good news of the gospel is that the gospel covers our compromise. It quickens our laziness and it gives us confidence in the face of fear. That is our call, to be a city on a hill, to be a lamp in a room that gives light to those around us, uh, undeniably noticeable. Well, Jesus wants his disciples to live like this. That's what he says in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, In the same way, in the same way as the light and the city, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same, in the same way that a city on a hill is undeniably noticeable, in the same way that a light in the corner of the room provides light for the house, that is how you should live. Not secretively and shamefully, but 
boldly, noticeable. The light here that Jesus talks about is the good works. You notice there, let your light shine. What do they see of the light? Your good works. Now, good works here isn't just about deeds of mercy and justice and caring for the poor, although it includes those things. It's much broader than that. These good works that Jesus has in mind here include a life that is littered with generosity and sacrifice and service and unconditional love and, in fact, everything you do in your life. Paul instructs the churches through Timothy and Titus to be devoted to doing good, to be devoted to doing good works that would bless those around you. And so this life that Jesus calls us to is not just simply a life of caring for the poor, but a life of seeking to do good wherever we are. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Just this week, I went down to our, the office at the front of our unit complex. If you've ever been to our place, uh, you'll know it's kind of like Fort Knox, 2,500 residents, 1,100 units. And at the very front of it is some boom gates and security. And to come to visit, you need to come with your registration plate and your license, and you need to sign in. And they give you a visitor's pass and then they let you through. And, and every Tuesday night, we have anywhere between 10 to 20 people come to our house for our gospel community and whatever else is happening at our place during the week. And this week, I went down to pick up a package that we'd received at the front desk. And the lady who does check-in on Tuesday nights just happened to be there. And she said to me, oh, you're Matt Sparks. And I was like, uh, yes, I am. She's like, oh, those young, those young people that come to your Bible group, I was like, oh no, here we go. They're annoyed. We're taking up all the visitors parking and she doesn't like having to hand out all the visitors passes as a hassle. She goes, they're the nicest people I've ever met. She turns to her colleague and she's like, no, you gotta, these are the nicest young people I've ever met in my life. You don't understand. We have hundreds and hundreds of people that come through that office every single day and our gospel community is the one that have left an impression on her because of what? A friendly smile, being polite. Some of them have taken her Christmas presents, flowers, just sought to love her in really simple ways, doing good. Or another example is one of our gospel communities that meets in Summer Hill is connected. And I've shared this story before, but I want to share it again because it's such a wonderful story. Connected with one of the girls who works at the cafe. And she was in Melbourne just before her wedding doing some shopping and someone stole her bag with $1,000. All of the money that she'd saved up to buy all of the last things she needed for her wedding, her shoes, her jewelry, all of it stolen. She was devastated. And when the Summerhill Gospel community found out about it, they went back to their GC and they said, look, this is what's happened. Can we pray about whether or not we're in a position to give money to her so that she can go and get what she needs for her wedding? And I think they donated $800 to her and just blessed her and gave it to her and said, here, we want to love you and serve you in this way. That's incredible. Or maybe a, a, a deeper example is, is this one. Often when our light shines brightest is when we face two, one of two things, opposition to what we believe, our faith, and suffering. Because those are the two things that often cause people's worlds to absolutely fall apart. When suffering comes the way of the world, life almost ends. And I want to share to you an example of someone who has left a profound impact on my life, and that is Shane Viglione, Ethan and Isaac's dad. He passed away a number of years ago, but I remember him standing before our church and announcing the diagnosis. 
and saying to our church that if Jesus counts me worthy of this, then I will receive it. And I was like, how can you say that? You've got six children. You've got a beautiful wife. Can I tell you the impact of that man? And it wasn't just how he walked through his suffering. It was all of, all of it that happened before he was diagnosed with cancer. All of his employees knew that the company that he ran, that people were cared for, that they were, that they were looked out for, that they were encouraged, that they were blessed. It was a wonderful company to work for, a wonderful culture to be a part of. And yet as Shane walked through his suffering, people looked at that and thought, he has got something that I don't have. There is a hope inside that man beyond his health and his life. And many people that worked in his business became Christians because of his testimony of how he walked through suffering. It's often in the darkest of moments of our life, as we cling to the hope that Jesus offers, that our light shines brightest. Now, I don't want to suggest that you just put on a chip of smile and pretend that everything's okay to cover up what's really beneath you. We've at least already heard two sermons this year on what lament looks like, to cry out to God in those moments, to be honest. And I think the gospel allows us to do that. But what we do is we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we have hope in a resurrection. We have hope in a reunion of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And that hope ought to radically change the way we live, the way we suffer, the way we receive opposition. Our influence depends on our character. Our influence as a church depends on our character. But some of you might object to this and think, well, hang on a sec, I know what comes next. Because in just a few verses' time, Jesus will say at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, do not do your works of righteousness in front of people. That's true, he does say that. But you know, the, the, the works of righteousness that Jesus condemns there in, in chapter 6, verse 1, are works of righteousness that are done to shine the light on the person. That the religious people would stand on the corners and pray, that people would be impressed with their prayers, that people would give and <clears throat> look how much I'm giving and shine the light on their good deeds, that they would be glorified. There is a world of difference between someone who does something for God's glory and for their own glory. And I tell you, you don't have to be a person of faith to notice that. It's undeniably noticeable. So the fact that Jesus says, do not do your works of righteousness to be seen by others, doesn't contradict what he's just said there. It's about the motivation in the heart from where that comes. Second objection might be this. Isn't this just being nice? I mean, isn't, aren't we called to proclaim the gospel, to preach the truth? And, and it's true. We are called to proclaim, proclaim the gospel. But that's not all we're called to do. If you've been with us on the journey through the first half of Luke's gospel, you will see time and time again, proclamation and deed go together. In the ministry of Jesus, in the ministry of the disciples in the early church, word and deed always go together. We're not called just to dump propositions on people in the hope that they would become Christians. We're called to love them, and then as they look at our lives and the way we handle all of these things, they would be attracted to the faith that we have, and we share Christ with them in that context. The old saying that might be corny is actually true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They need to see something in us 
They need to see the gospel lived, not just downloaded on them. You know, my hope for 2015 is that we would live this out. That the darkness and the brokenness of our city would be filled with beacons of light and hope. That we would be communities of sacrifice, of generosity, of beautiful works, of grace, of mercy, of peace, of humility, of proclaiming the gospel. We use the phrase around here, living such phenomenal lives that it demands an explanation. We didn't, we didn't come up with that. We stole that from someone else. But we think it's wonderful living such phenomenal lives that it demands an explanation. Living such a phenomenal life that as the person looks at your life, looks at how you choose to spend your time, looks at how you choose to spend and give away your money, looks at how you respond to suffering, how you carry yourself as people oppose your faith and they think, to you know what? There is something about that person that I want to know more about. I want to know more what drives that person. I want to know how they can have hope in that circumstance and context. And so having said that, our vision for 2015, if you've been here from the start, actually isn't changing one bit. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing, what we've been doing for the last 12 months. My hope is that we will excel in it and grow in it. But we're going to keep being a church that lives in community, on mission, the foundation of the gospel to the glory of God. We're going to keep doing that. But my heart for this church is that we wouldn't just grow by reshuffling the statistics. We wouldn't just grow by transfer growth. Now, let me qualify that. If you've come here from another church, which by and large is almost everyone here, we love the fact that you've joined us and called Anchor Home. We've loved the fact that you've been able to find a church where you felt like you can use your gifts and, and felt like He's calling you to be on mission and not just warm up you. We love the fact that you've decided to join us and you haven't just made us a bigger church, you've made us a better church by that. But my deep desire is that we wouldn't just reshuffle the chairs, but that we would see revival in this city. That we would see God pour out His Spirit in such a way that thousands of people would get saved and come to worship Jesus as He deserves. That's our hope. That's our desire. And so if you want to call Anchor Home, it doesn't matter where you've come from, join us in that vision. And you know, to see that happen, we need to do a number of things. You, you, we can't stir revival up by our activity. God has to send revival down. But what we can do is prepare for it. Prepare our hearts prepare our church, and there's a number of things that I think we need to do to do that. The first is we need to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. We need to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. Now, the way that we've decided, there's heaps of ways you can do that. The way we've decided to do that at Anchor is what we've called the five for five. We've asked everyone who's been a part of our community, in our gospel communities, to think of five people in their life that they would like to come to know the, the hope of Jesus. Work colleagues, friends, neighbors, family members, whoever it is, think of five people that you would like to come to know Jesus this year and do five things for them. Pray for them every day. Do something nice. Uh, contact them once a, once a week. Do something nice for them once a month. Invite them to your events, your celebrations, your gatherings, and share your faith as opportunity arises. It's very simple, but it's about being intentional in our everyday. 
Now, some people came to us throughout last year and said, yeah, but what about those everyday encounters that you have? What about the people that don't necessarily fit on your five that you just seem to bump into? And so we need a plus one. We need an extra sixth person, if you like, that may not be a, a sixth individual that we're praying for every day, but just an encounter that might be an holy, a holy encounter that day that God has ordained and a person he has put in front of us to love, to bless, to care, to share the gospel with. But we want to be intentional about that. The second thing I think we need to do is be a praying church. All of this activity can come to nothing unless we plead with God that he would do what he does. Because we can't transform lives. Only God does that. And we need to be a praying church. And for me, this is the area I would love to see Anchor grow in the most this year. I want to grow in it personally myself. My hope is that you personally want to grow in it. But I, I would love us to be a church that prays well. We're not even close. We're not even close to, to being that. Our culture needs to change in this area. And so to help us do that, we're beginning next week a five-week mini-series on prayer. As we rediscover what prayer is, why we pray, how can we pray if God already knows the answers to our prayers? Is prayer really powerful? Can it change things? We're going to begin to explore some of those options in the hope that it would stir our church towards prayer. We pray in a number of ways at Anchor. One of the ways we pray is by our monthly prayer meetings. And this morning was the first of them. And it was so wonderful to see a, a large crowd of people gathered out on the deck this morning praying for half an hour. We used to do that on Sunday afternoons. And it's probably just too hard for people to get to. Come to the gathering, go home, have lunch, and come back for prayer. So we're going to do it before, from 9.40. We're going to pray for half an hour on the first Sunday of every month. We also pray in our gospel communities. We don't want prayer just to be that quick little five-minute thing that gets tacked on at the end of our Bible study. We want, we want to be a praying community. And we also pray weekly in the city. On Wednesday mornings, the, our friends over at York Street, uh, sorry, Church Hill, have opened up their hall to us and we go and pray there on Wednesday mornings at 7.30. And so if you work in the city or if you can get there and then get to work afterwards at 7.30, we'd love you to join us for prayer. And that is going to kick off again this week. But we want to be a praying church, a church that saturates every corner of the life of this church in prayer. Because in the end, if we labor on our own, if the Lord does not bless, our work is in vain. And we need to plead with God that he can do what only he can do. Finally, community. You know, the best expression of what we do is our gospel communities. That is where you will really see the gospel transformed life being lived out. That's where you will really see light. That's where you'll see people caring for each other with radical generosity. That's where you'll see people deeply praying for their friends. That's where you'll see people opening their homes. That's where you'll see love. That's where you'll see people coming and confessing their sin and others applying the gospel to that. Honesty, openness, real community. And friends, if you want to call Anchor home, we plead with you to join a gospel community this week. Come up and talk to myself or Brian or Brad. We would love to get you plugged in to a community of faith, a group of people who are living in community together, on mission together, wherever their group meets in the suburbs around them. That is the best expression of what we do as community in our gospel communities. That is where you will get cared for. That is where your faith will get nurtured. So please join us. This is our gospel identity. 
Our identity is you are the light of the city of Sydney. Our call is that we would shine our lights, that we would live such phenomenal lives that it would demand explanation. In your workplaces, in your tutorial groups, in your sporting teams, in your mother's groups, in your homes, to your neighbors, whatever context God has called you to, that you would live such a phenomenal life that it would demand explanation that people would look at you and say, there's something about that person that I need. I need to know what drives that person. I need to know what brings them hope in that context. That's our calling. And so I want to invite all of those who call Anchor Home and want to commit to that vision to do that now in the following ways. In a second, I'm going to pray. And I want to commission you as a church to be in community and on mission. And if you want to say, yes, 2015, God, I want to make this my vision as well, that I want to be a light, then during the prayer time, I just, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand as a way of saying, yes, I'm in. Whatever it takes, I'm all in on this vision. We're also going to respond to the gospel now in two other ways, by the Lord's Supper and in worship. To my right and left, you'll see two stations with some bread and some grape juice. And these, these things are symbols of what Jesus has done. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' body that was broken. The, blood, the grape juice is a symbol of his, his blood that was shed and poured out for us for our forgiveness. And so we invite you to come forward and remember that Jesus, the light of the world, has broken into your darkness and taken away your sin. And dip that bread into the grape juice and eat it and remember the truth of the gospel. And respond in praise and worship to our God. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to pray. And invite all of those now who would like to commit to this vision, to be commissioned this morning to be a light to this city to just raise your hand now as we pray and commit this to God. Friends, if you don't want to do this, then don't feel compelled to put your hand up. We want this to be true for people who are willing to do whatever it takes. Jesus, we thank you that you are the true light. We thank you for revealing our sin and shining your light of grace in our hearts. Thank you for pouring out your spirit. Thank you for lighting us from the inside. And help us to be this morning the people that you've called us to be. Every single person who has their hand in the air this morning, Father, please make us light. Wherever you have called us, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our teams, make us light. May our city never recover from your presence in your people. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.